Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can get on our mailing list, find show notes, transcripts, as well as videos at narrativespodcast.com. Thanks. Well, hey, Wolf, how are you doing today? I'm great. How about you? Doing great. Thanks so much for coming on. I've been enjoying Palladium for quite a while, and it's a a treasure to get to chat with you today. Um, Wolf, could you just give a a brief bio and, and maybe some of the big things you're interested in? Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. I was trained as an engineer in Canada, uh, mechanical engineering, and I worked in that for a little while on fuel cells and, and some other sort of green technology stuff. And then I got bored, I guess, and uh, realized there were other problems or, or that maybe engineering wasn't what we needed the, the biggest problems that we were faced with weren't actually engineering problems we know how to solve those problems and it was other kinds of barriers that were sort of holding back progress and so you know i i went and tried to find my own thing tried to find my own path for a while and ended up building an intellectual network around looking at the problem of governance and then recently i well, i don't know it's recently in my story it's not so recent now but three years ago 2018, we started Palladium Magazine, which was basically to serve as the flagship magazine of this network that I, these these ideas that I'd been putting together with my friends um, around governance. We wanted to basically have a magazine where we could represent uh, a point of view outside of what's sort of currently the mainstream view, but not not getting into sort of the fringe edge, whatever, you know, that, that sort of dominates the kind of alternative conversations. We wanted something that was uh, really, really putting forth kind of a, a real alternative way of thinking and, and to develop that. It was an open-ended project, right? We, we'd identified these problems, but we hadn't identified fully solutions. So we wanted to kind of have this open-ended intellectual problem, uh, intellectual pro- project of, of, you know, how do we, how are we to understand the historical moment? How do we, how are we to understand what's holding us back and where we have to go? So, and we kind of centered that around this conversation about governance. Anyway, so that's, that's my story and the story of Palladium. Um, happy to answer more questions if there's more detail you want anywhere in there. That's great. Well, Wolf, was it, was there a single moment where you realized, you know, okay, governance, that's the big challenge I need to work on? Or was it kind of a slow slide? Like, you know, it just kind of accumulated. Oh man. Yeah. So, um, since sort of, I don't know, I, I sort of, uh, have this saying that I sort of like became sentient at 15, you know, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. It's weird. There was this click where I started thinking about issues larger than myself. And I think it was around that. And it was sometime kind of high school. Right. And uh, since then, I've always been thinking about sort of the, the grand fate of things. Where are we going? What should we be doing at the highest level? And um, now, obviously, that was quite a bit before what I'm talking about with, with zeroing in on governance. But that's kind of the spirit that's in the background. So I had always been studying things and trying to figure things out and formulate my ideas and put forth my ideas and all this. Um, and then... I think sometime around 2011, 2012, 2013, I really got into a bunch of new ideas and sort of very deeply changed my view of the world. And um, I wouldn't say it was like a singular moment, but there was sort of a definite transformation there. And then from that, that still wasn't quite the governance thing. That was where I started to see new problems and I started to really see things in a different way. I, I, I think I had had a more like naive viewpoint before that. And I really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, and, and I looked at these problems that we could see and I realized they were basically governance problems that something had gone wrong in government. And um, 
Yeah. And, and that, that took a long time, a lot of reasoning to figure out like, what is actually the right way to push on this? Like even something that's sort of, you think, oh yeah, it's obviously a governance problem. Well, there's all these like different approaches, right? Do you start a company? Do you start a political movement? Do you start, you know, do you just talk about it intellectually, you know, or do you right. just raise awareness? Like there's all kinds of things you could do there. And, and but I realized that actually the big bottleneck after, you know, obviously talking about this with, with uh, my friends and collaborators for quite a while, we realized that the big bottleneck was we actually don't know what we're doing with running a civilization. We don't have a clear paradigm for that. The paradigms we do have are, in my opinion, not very good. Um, I could say more strong things than that, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, and and um, yeah, so, so we were like thinking this problem through and we realized, okay, what we need here is to really think this problem through and really... Uh, come up with better solutions. And once you have better solutions, once you have convinced um, the powers that be or whatever powers will be um, on, on the fact that we should govern civilization well and how to do that um, and, and then build the, the institutional structures necessary to do so, then suddenly all these other problems become obviously problems that just get solved as a consequence of approaching the core problem correctly. So that was, that was my reasoning. I, I'm not going into detail on, on what the particular problems were, because I don't think that they matter. It was, gotcha. it was just, you know, things that had piqued my interest, but um, I realized that there was this sort of er problem of governance that was much bigger than that. Gotcha. That, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think there's anything for, about your perspective that's informed? Are you, you're from British Columbia, is that correct? Or at least you went to yeah, school that's in British right. Columbia? That's right. I'm actually in British Columbia right now. I've escaped oh, nice. from California for uh, COVID. It was not as useful to be paying Bay Area rent. <laughs> uh, you know. So I came back to British Columbia. I had to be with my family and, and uh, spend the summer up, up here on the beaches. It's a, it's a beautiful place. I, I spent a day there on a layover while going to China couple of years ago and it was it was beautiful um but yeah do you think there's there's something about being like kind of like on the board like you can almost peek over and look at, at america and see all the problems we have from almost a third-party perspective do you think there's something to that that maybe helped formulate some of these ideas yeah there's a few things there's a few things um so i mean i think the first and most obvious result of my living in British Columbia is, is I'm something of an environmentalist. Um, so this, this, you know, I grew up in it. We grew up going out into the woods, uh, you know, being very engaged with these conservation efforts and so on. Um, because in British Columbia, it's very obvious, right? You go out in the woods and you see these beautiful old growth forests, these incredibly majestic, dignified beings, these trees, right? And, and all the whole ecosystem is built around that. And then you see these black hole clear cuts, right? It's like, oh man, <laughs> we've, right got out. Be, we, we've got to be doing something better than that. Um, yeah. So that's, that's one of the, like the deepest things. And I, that comes through in palladium occasionally. Um, it's not central to us, but it's something that I, I, I think it's important. So I put it in there. I don't think it causes a problem. Um, the second thing is I think as a Canadian or growing up as a Canadian, at least I, I am actually an American citizen. But um, I didn't re receive a American political education. So gotcha. I don't have some of the same uh, commitments and prejudices and, in my opinion, false models that I see among my American friends. And um, we could go into detail there if you want, but basically there's a lot of really subtle cultural stuff that is very different. Um, coming down just to things like, you know, we would have, we would have friends, um, you know, outside the city who are, you know, we're, we're like kind of urban, secular, whatever I was raised Unitarian. Um, and, you know, we have these friends outside the city they are, you know, traditional Christian kind of conservative types, yeah. um, small business owners out in the, out sort of almost in the wilderness. And, you know, we'd be friends with them, family, friends, no, no problem. It's like, you know, you vote for different parties. Occasionally there's an argument about it on some family trip or whatever, but like, it's, it's, uh, it was very tame politically yes. in terms of like political divides. That's one of these big things where, 
Uh, I like to say the psyop doesn't cross the border. Um, <laughs> this is the, really interesting. The, there, there are no bumper stickers in British Columbia. There are bumper stickers in in Washington, um, and and it's it's just that somehow a lot of the emotional investment in the political process is not there in Canada, um, specifically the American political process, which is the one that has sort of the most international importance. Um, anyway, so I think that actually did affect my worldview and it affects my way of approaching things. I have fewer of the sort of deep emotional commitments to certain things that other people do have. Um, the third thing is that Vancouver is this interesting little time capsule where, you know, Canadian government isn't very ambitious. The Vancouver government isn't very ambitious. I think they should be in both cases. They aren't. Um, Canada is not part of the United States, so it's a little bit neglected from that perspective. Vancouver obviously falls under that label. So Vancouver is this little kind of forgotten place. And the, the interesting demographic result of that is you get a lot of people who escape from East Coast institutional kind of upper middle class official life. They come to Vancouver in the last generation or, or they come from other places in the world where, where they're just kind of like fleeing the process of history or whatever, right? And they end up in Vancouver and their kids are still from these ambitious backgrounds, but now in this very unambitious place. And so you get an interesting Vancouver has this interesting underground of very interesting young people. They tend to leave, but occasionally things happen. And one of the things that happened was my network. We, uh, a bunch of us randomly found each other through various means, including the internet and um, just a bunch of sort of ambitious young people who are really interested in uh, some of these larger issues, but had no existing structure around us that that was engaging us with them um anyway so that's that's this i don't know if if that argument is coming through clearly but i think there's something there that that there is this like weird kind of underground um not even a single underground but just a, yeah. a phenomenon that has happened in vancouver in the last like let's say 30 years that's really cool that's really interesting and, and it kind of paints like you know the catalyst for palladium and and the this, the network. I, I really like that. I, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, like, like the, the editors of Palladium. So Jonah yeah. and I founded it. Jonah and I both from Vancouver. Ash nice. is work, has been working with us pretty much the whole time. And he's now, the, the editorial team is now me and Ash. We're all from Vancouver. And wow, a cool. lot of, a lot of our, um, a lot of our best writers as well. So it's, yeah. So there is this little Vancouver circle that, that kind of kicked the thing off. That's awesome. The Vancouver mob. Um, <laughs> I, I'm curious, what are some of those narratives, you know, that, you know, we get indoctrinated with here in America that you see and, and as an outsider, you're like, wow, you know, one, I, one I can definitely see just internally is like American exceptionalism, you know, we're exceptionally fat, we're exceptionally, you know, right. perhaps arrogant, you know, and there's all these things and, you know, but then we are exceptionally wealthy as well. So, you know, there's like trade-offs. Mm -hmm. But what are some of the big narratives that you see as probably problematic and and bad for American growth and development? If that makes sense, at some spiritual yeah. level. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great question. Um, so one of them, these are very subtle, like I mentioned. So it's hard to really articulate, at least the ones that really get me. I mean, there's there's some of the obvious ones, right? Just in terms of like party divide, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But one of them is a certain orientation towards career and relationships, which is more shallow. I'm not going to like, I'm not comparing to Canada here. I, I yeah. you know, I, Canadians may well be just as bad, whatever it was, though, my way of thinking ended up a little bit different than this. And, and so the, I'm, I'm critiquing American way of thinking from my perspective, not necessarily a Canadian perspective. Again, I'm also American. Um, so anyways, yeah, there's, there's this particular sort of careerism, this individualism around career and relationships and, and material commitments that I think is really harmful. 
um, people have this ideal of, of kind of this middle-class life. They have this ideal of kind of pro progress in their career. You know, everyone wants to be a leader. Everyone wants to be a founder. Um, they very, very sort of instrumentalized relationships in that sense, but, but in a, in my opinion, in a shallow way. And, gotcha. um, and yeah, and, and so it really does come down to this individualism and in, in a negative connotation, there is a negative aspect to individualism, which is that you are unable to coordinate with other people in a deep manner. And like in almost a spiritual manner, you, you have a hard time actually connecting with other people in, in ways other than, I mean, I mean, in any way, but in the particular ways of, of, of politically, which is, I think, you know, man is a political animal, right? You need to connect with other people politically in the sense of actually forming a lasting coordinated relationship where you are, uh, where your loyalty is to each other. And, and, and not to other things. And that kind of thing I see as extremely important and extremely valuable. And um, I've been frustrated with uh, a lack of that occasionally. Another one, um, another one is the emotional commitment to the fate of the country. And this seems obvious, like obviously you should be invested in your own nation. Yes. You should be invested in the systems of government that it has. You should be invested in, in that way of life. On the other hand, I think the current moment of history is the process of that thing dying and something new maybe will come to replace it. And I think the productive mindset right now is not one of emotional commitment to the thing. And I, you know, I, I say this with some pain because obviously it's a tragedy when something great is dying, but I see people dragged down psychologically by that in a way that is not actually warranted. Um, and I don't want to let the people who like don't care about the thing off the hook because there's a lot of people who don't care about the thing and they are right. even more wrong, perhaps. Uh, they, they sort of fragrantly undermine it or, or work against uh, its interests or, uh, or just sort of disregard the ways they are in fact still existentially tied to the thing. Um, and so that's, that's sort of this other er error. But um, yeah, I think, I think in particular, I actually count that as the same kind of error. It, it comes out of somehow um, I'm not sure I can articulate this, but I think it's the same kind of error. It, it's, it's something about like commitment to somehow the tribal narrative about what America is. Gotcha. And and, you know, one side is going to be overcommitted to its current forms and current existence. And the other side is going to be overcommitted to like ignoring and disregarding the commitment they actually have. Um, anyway, so, so I'm going to pause there and, and leave it at that. Those are things that I think uh, are unproductive about America's kind of relationship to itself. I think that's both of those are incredibly important and in perhaps quite underrated, you know, I, I grew up in red state America and now I live in a big Metro pool. It's kind of the opposite. And I go back and every time I go back, you know, once every two quarters or so, I'm just blown away at the divide and how much it's grown in the last three months and how far, I mean, it feels like two different countries. I mean, it's in, yep. which is something like, it seems like you don't experience in Canada, which is quite, it's just, it's mind blowing to me. We, we didn't, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, with the internet, but sorry, it does cross the border a little bit more than it used to. <laughs> That's quite, it's quite entertaining. Um, so I, I did have a, a question and it's, it's based off some of the things you said about, you know, repeated games and individualism being a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I look at, and I see governance in the U S seems to have been getting worse and worse, especially since the seventies, but sometime in yep. the seventies, 1973. Is this, is this something you feel too? Do you, and, and what uh, yeah, do you no, no, it's, this is visible in the graphs, right? You look at any graph. I mean, there's a website. It, I think it's <laughs> what, like, ha what the heck what happened? happened in 1971 or something. I, yeah. I disagree. I think it's 1973, but whatever, you know, I, <laughs> right. it's, I, I, I can never figure out what exactly the, the 
catalyst event was, but it's somehow yeah. the old order broke down and the new order came in. The new order was not committed to progress in the yeah. same way and, or not committed to the same kind of progress. It had a new vision of progress. And some of that was good and some of that was bad, but it's very obvious that, that the core central institutions uh, of our society and the industrial uh, complex have been neglected since the early 70s. I, I definitely feel this, you know, I was, um, I'm from a mill town and, and if, right. you, you know, the, the mill is, it's gone, you know, there's no opportunities, deaths of despair are all over the place. Right. You know, it, it really, it, it makes you wonder, do you have any idea? Was it just the new deal? I mean, and why is like overdetermined in this case, I know, but like, was the new dealers just retired? You know, they went in at 25, they retired at 65, you know, 40 years later, they're just, they're, they're done, they're, they're out. And the next generation that replaced them was just not as competent. It's more bureaucratic. The large agencies just don't work. I think there well. was some of that. I think there was some of that. Um, I think World War II brought about a large social change. And then all the people who were trained before World War II retired in the early 70s. Gotcha. Um, there was the sort of boomer uprising with... Um, whatever happened there, you know, large scale social change, basically where the boomers were very, uh, you know, in some cases, rightly disillusioned with the society that they had inherited and, and they didn't want to follow that path. Um, I think there were economic problems that we don't entirely understand, at least in the sort of default consciousness. Um, I don't understand that stuff very well myself. I've been trying to, but I, I still don't feel like I have, my a handle on it but you know there was a reason that they had to go off the the gold standard or they felt that they did yeah um there's there's reasons that a bunch of the out outsourcing and out uh, offshoring and so on that that gutted kind of the the rust belt there's a reason that that stuff happened and um i think another one actually is is just globalization like gotcha. what you had after the war was america had conquered the war, conquered the world more or less and um, America and, and the Soviet Union together, but uh, had conquered the world. And suddenly there was this new order. In the new order, there was a lot of opportunity to make use of labor that had previously not been available. And um, basically the, the American society, whatever the deal was in, the Amer in American society, no longer had negotiating leverage against, I don't know, we'll call it capital. No longer it had negotiating competition because you, yeah. 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 A bunch of negotiating leverage uh, by, by sort of the normal healthy fabric of society and, and uh, normal people had been lost in, in that globalization process. And um, yeah, so it, it broke the kind of crap, the class relationship in the United States, I think, um, like there had been a collaboration, um, and, you know, not, not necessarily a good one in all cases, but, but, uh, you know, from the new deal, basically to late sixties, early seventies, there had been something like uh, a, a deal worked out. And then that deal had been broken by, um, a bunch of these, historical factors that we've been mentioning plus this globalization issue and and so you see afterwards very much the 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 profits of of i mean not to use like occupy wall street language but like the rich kept getting richer right and and other people stopped getting richer and uh things otherwise sort of stagnated in a lot of ways uh, though, you know, again, from the environmentalist perspective, a lot of mess got cleaned up as well, right. um, at least in North America. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have a handle on the whole thing. I, I have a bunch of these little contributing factors. I don't have a monocausal explanation for sure. And I don't think necessarily that there is. Gotcha. No, I, I, I like that. I, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned this breakdown of, you know, perhaps class relationships and. And it's unclear whether to me, whether it was just like they had the opportunity to globalize and, you know, move the factory out and, and you can make more money. We, you know, management can make a lot more money if we just blow up the factory and move it. Yeah. In fact, I know someone whose entire profession was taking these factories, boxing them up and sending them to China. And, you know, Ouch. you know, I mean, it's really like it was terribly drive around North Carolina and do this. Um, do you think it is, did, 
what happened to elite responsibility? You know, was it just, you know, they're always selfish and it just, they finally had the opportunity or is there some sociology of elite responsibility where, yeah, you know, I think this degrades. I mean, yeah, it degrades. Um, so this is a little bit complex, I guess, but, um, so the new deal, you mentioned the new deal, the new deal obviously was a, something of a circulation of elites and, uh, a new, class of people kind of came in uh, with with new ideas and pushed out the old people who maybe hadn't been performing very well at that point because they had degenerated um and i mean you see this with with after that kind of the the idea of the wasp being very much like a derogatory term whereas before that there had been this kind of um sense of nobility attached to not that term in particular, because it hadn't been used before that, but, but that class of people. And um, yeah, so there, there was an elite that had something like sort of aristocratic sense of responsibility towards the rest of society. And, and, you know, they'd, they'd done the things that they had done and it wasn't all perfect, but there had been something like that. Um, But I think the paradigm that it had been operating under necessarily undermined itself uh, for various reasons and then sort of when there was that new deal a new new guard came in you know a lot of um communists in the government uh, at that time um and and other things but i don't think it was just that but but just generally like different people different ideas very much not believing in the old order um and but I don't think they had any sort of real replacement order or real sense of responsibility. There was the immediate issue of, um, I mean, I think under FDR, sort of the new deal, there was this vision of kind of like building up society. Then there was world war two. There was very much existential need to mobilize, uh, in this shared way. And, but, um, yeah, I mean, the whole thing kind of got exhausted. And like we were saying, and and broke down eventually in the 70s. Um, but it, it had already kind of burned out. But I think one additional issue that I that is is important here is just that the way people think about what they're trying to get out of public life. Um, I don't know if it's changed or whatever, but it's it, the, the way it is that I think is the problem is that you have people kind of chasing their own individual material interests. And, and like, this is, you know, the commies will tell you, this is the, the, the interests of capital as a class, right? It's capital is sort of like inherently interested in just its own perpetuation uh, from, from sort of like a aggregate individual perspective, not from a solid, like, the, the the key fact is that capital doesn't actually have solidarity in, in in a true strategic sense. It is not capable of acting on shared plans that don't that go beyond um, financial interest uh, right. because of just the way the thing is set up. So I think I think that doesn't help, and it goes way beyond just that sort of very materialistic analysis. I, I think there's a whole bunch of stuff like that where the ideology and aspirations of the elite uh, have unfortunately become too narrow uh, and not doesn't don't have enough of that sort of coordination spirit the 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 spirit of actually kind of having solidarity with each other to run a government to accomplish whatever ambitious goal that goes beyond position within that society it's it's more like we have this society, what are we going to use it for rather than we are in this society? How are we going to boost ourselves up within it? Um, do you see the difference there? Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously the former only is possible in certain material contexts, but I think that's sort of the, one of the core issues that I think is, is most important. It's just like, we need to build up a consciousness, sort of a, a, a new, I mean, maybe it's the old way of thinking about government, but but for our, from our perspective, it's a new way of thinking about government, which is that that there is in fact 
there, there are elite people in charge of the government and they or we, depending on who they are, have to um, have to see society as something that is useful to them, that they are building up for some further end uh, rather than, uh, you know, trying to just gain gain or preserve position within society. And I think gotcha. this this is this key problem of social engineering of like, so, you know, building the right social technologies of how do you actually supply an elite with that kind of ambition and that kind of coordination? Um, like it, it's not just like, oh yeah, everyone has to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and, and develop a different like ideology. It's, is you have to actually build something there to accomplish that. You need to build a new paradigm of how we govern society. You need to build its institutions. You need to build its supply lines. Like, you know, supply lines are, are important in ideas as well as material goods, right? Like we don't operate on ideas that we cook up in our own heads most of the time. Most of the time we're getting our ideas from our, our sources. And so any idea that you expect to exist in society must also therefore have some institution that is perpetuating that idea. Um, so you have to think, okay, if you want society to have this kind of responsibility where the elite is leading society for some purpose, then you have to have institutions that are producing that. What does that look like, et cetera, et cetera. So this is like the first big problem that I sort of focus on with Palladium is, is like, how do we build that kind of consciousness? Um, and, and not just, not just like, you know, whining about it and saying, oh yeah, wouldn't it be great if the elite thought like this, but, but thinking about what, what are the particular kinds of institutions we need to build for that? We don't necessarily like make palladium about this, except somewhat uh, obliquely, but we sort of see palladium as this kind of thing. We're trying to produce that kind of institution. Gotcha. I, I really like that. And is part of that just, you know, trying to paint a picture of a definite future that we can get everybody to buy into? Because it seems like one of the big problems yep. with you know, this liberal order, it's like, well, just go figure it out. But, you know, right. each person can go figure it out, right? But it's like, oh, God, like how are, how do you actually reach some better point if there's not like a definite roadmap? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of Peter Thiel's dichotomy between the indefinite and the definite uh, optimist. Um, and... Yeah, I, I think definiteness is important. I mean, the, the, the key fact of definiteness is that you're making definite plans. It's not just that you have particular beliefs about the future. It's that you're making particular plans and you're acting on them in a coordinated manner. And um, yeah, I think I think the like big definite thing that we need to be working on right now is, again, this transformation to, <clears throat> excuse me, and this transformation to a new form of institutional consciousness about how we govern society and a new paradigm of how you actually build social technology in society, what that's for, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a, and, and that, I guess that itself is actually a definite view of human institutions. It's a view where these things are technology. We can plan them. We can build them. You know, there's all these caveats that we have to add to that in terms of Where's the information coming from? Who is actually making those actions? You can't just do this central planning, naive, like cut everything up into rectangles and like say that's how it's going to be and send out the plan. That doesn't work. It's, it was tried in the 20th right. century. It was, you know, <laughs> Brazilian paradigm. Um, yeah, and Brasilia is sort of the, the best case outcome. Worst case, of course, is, is stuff like what happens in the USSR. Right. Um, but um, yeah, you can't necessarily do that. that Top, totally top-down thing, but you still have to have a theory of where you're going, how you're doing it, what your plan is. And that plan can be distributed throughout society, but there is a plan. And and yeah, so that, that's a more definite view of things. And I think we need to be going towards a more definite view. And I think part of that actually is the plan to get there, the plan from here to there. We need to be working on that. And that is this, this definite dream that, you know, I put out this article on Palladium called A New Golden Age of Governance where we were sort of championing this idea um, of, of sort of this definite re-engineering of society towards, towards particular ends. And um, that's me trying to rally people around that kind of thinking, trying to take the, 
the, what we have with Palladium and say, okay, we're actually trying to lead people in this direction. We want to think more in this direction. We want to approach life more in this direction. And we want to imagine a definite transformation in this direction. Um, and then it, I supplemented that with two other major kind of definite directions, vectors that we have to be pursuing. The first is reindustrialization, or as you might say, completing the industrial revolution. So our current analysis is basically that um, post-industrial is fake. There is no post-industrial, there is only industrial. Uh, the, the next paradigm has not actually been cooked up. So what we need to be doing is mastering the industrial. And um, in, in North America, in the West, that means we need to get industry back because we've, we've dropped the ball. And, and people have this idea like, well, yeah, we're a developed country or something. I think that's fake too. There is no such thing as being a developed country. We are, you're either developing or not developing. Um, and there's, and I think a, a sort of more concrete way to say that is just tons of room left, even with current technology, entirely current technology, even technology that was available in the sixties, there is tons of room left for what we could do in terms of just material development, build more capital, build more stuff, build more, build more trains, build better planes, build better computers, build, build, you know, more factories, build bigger, bigger and better stuff, build more efficiently, improve the efficiencies, get everything smaller and lighter impact, right? Like uh, govern the whole thing better. There's, you know, obviously there's a lot of small innovations involved in that, but, but people often lean on these kind of like sort of whiz bang, big technologies like, oh yeah, you know, fusion will save us, right? But but no, actually, we're not even using the nuclear technology we have. Why do you think new nuclear technology would make any difference? Um, you, you have to be, I think, I think like this is sort of before we should even be talking about technology, we should be talking about maxing out the technology that we have, the, right. the industrial revolution that we have. We have not completed it. We are maybe 10% um, uh, on like, you know, I'm just going to put that on a geometric, mean, right. not even, not even a, not even linearly, right? <laughs> if we were linearly 10%, great, we're almost done, right? But right. I, I, no, I think it's like 10% in terms of total amount of time, right? Um, yeah, so that, so that's 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 one this big industrial transformation that right. I think we have to make. And, and I want to jump jump in there. Was that you know I was going to mention nuclear power? It, was that kind of your frustration as an engineer? You know, you're looking at all these technologies, like wow. You know, we can keep designing more technology, but we have to have some method to actually get this into the real world. And if we can't, you know, we can't build more nuclear power plants, it doesn't matter, right? Like, it's just disallowed for governance reasons. Like, that's yeah. Not I mean, it, it, that that was that was one uh, one of the background issues. I mean, not it wasn't really central, but you gotcha. know, it's obviously a great example, right? Yeah. It's like we have we have this thing that works. It works, which we know is, it works, Everybody which is it works. nuclear technology. And there are problems with it, but you know what else there's problems with is like gain of function research on, on, uh, on <laughs> like lots of problems pathogens, with that. right? Like, so, you know, there's a lot of research that we're doing that's, uh, let's say that the death toll is a lot higher than, than uh, nuclear. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't think that's the real barrier. I think, I think, whatever. I don't want to get into the nuclear thing, but yeah. I, I think we should be doing nuclear. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th that's, that's one of them. Um, yeah. And so, so on this, on this problem of, of sort of completing the industrial revolution, um, I think this is, this is a major direction we need to be pursuing as a society. And, and I think to do that, we actually need some new social technologies because so we had an article recently uh, by Sam Oburia called The End of Industrial Society. And he made, I think, a very important point, which is that industrial society had depended for bootstrapping on a bunch of social technology that pre-existed industrial society in terms of human capital, especially, and how we produce human capital and, and all those networks and institutions that were around that. And it, it had, in the course of industrializing society, we actually destroyed those institutions. And now we are left having undermined our own foundation 
there are a bunch of things that we can't even do anymore uh, for that for, for for reason of having undermined our our foundations. And so part of the project of completing the industrial revolution is literally just figuring out how to keep it sustainable, not not even gotcha. environmentally sustainable, but socially sustainable. How do you even keep that thing going and have it not decay into this post-industrial malaise? Um, and again, the post-industrial thing is not some new glorious frontier. It's actually just exhaustion. Right. It's like um, the California fires and you can't get, you don't have lights on anymore. And right, right. It's just like, so, so yeah. So that's, that's a key part of that is like, we actually have to re-engineer the social foundations of industry. And, and again, this is why I proceed it with, we need a new golden age of social engineering, right? We need to be able to build social institutions. We need to be able to figure, like conceive of how we're governing society and, and actually get that skill of building those things. Um, I, I think that has never, that, that skill has not been um, produced at wide scale um, in, in recent history. Maybe it has never been, maybe it's only ever done by kind of these, these heroic founder figures, these people who figure out how to do it, or or these little these little networks that are able to build something new socially. But whatever whatever our theory is of how that happens, we have to figure out how to how to make it happen. Um, anyway, so that's that's the first two of my big directions that I think we want to pursue, and that we we sort of try to put forward with Palladium. The third one is is where we sort of integrate these environmental issues. So obviously we live on a finite planet um, and, and we're growing rapidly. Um, there's a bunch of negative impacts that we have as a result of that, you know, and, and things coming down the pipe like global warming. And we have to figure out how to manage those impacts. Um, a lot of people approach these issues as sort of, they oppose the industrial path and the environmental path as if these are different things. Right. And um, I think they're not different things. I think, I think deindustrialization is not the correct answer to environmental challenges. Um, and the way I see it is more like, can we take responsibility for the good things that are going on in Earth's ecosystems and the good things that are going on in Earth's climate systems and, and other natural systems? Can we take responsibility for that and accelerate those using management and technology? Can we make them better? Can we can we actively restore ecosystems using our our best uh, abilities? Can we actively build ecosystems where we want them? Can we actively maintain the climate to be what we want it to be? Can we actively maintain carbon levels to be you know uh, as low as is consistent with um, all the other factors that we have to balance there? Like, cognitive function and, and, uh, agricultural productivity and, and et cetera. Like I, I bring up cognitive function just because, um, at about a thousand BPM, you start to see yeah, cognitive effects. Yeah. You start to see cognitive effects of, of, uh, CO2 pollution and, and that's not too far off. So, um, you know, we can't just let that run out and block out the sun or whatever. Right. Like that's not a solution. Um, anyway, so there's, there's, all, we have to actually take take responsibility to manage the planet as a planet. And we haven't done that yet, but this is one of these big transformations that we have to make. It's big definite transformation over the next century, let's say. Um, so those, and, and I think these all actually feed into each other, right? The, the problem of managing human society is very much this gardening problem, right? Whereas, right. and the problem of, of taking responsibility for the, feedback systems, the, the cybernetic systems of nature in, in, uh, in our, in our environment, in our environment, that is a governance problem. It's something we have to learn to govern the planet. We have to learn to govern ecosystems. Um, these are both industrial problems they both happen within the industrial paradigm. We have to deploy industrial solutions. The industrial revolution is in some sense, most centrally characterized by taking an instrumental view of human relationships and, and human organizations. So, you know, before the industrial revolution, I think people have heard this anecdote a few times, but there was resistance to ideas like 
these labor-saving innovations, like the, you know the flying the flying shuttle in the loom that that makes it uh, automatic instead of manual to pass the thread back and forth when you're weaving um, when you're weaving fabric. Those that that's sort of this obvious idea. It could have been done at any time, but as a labor-saving innovation, as something that would change the relationship to the work, it was morally resisted. And so there's actually a moral transformation in how you're seeing production and how you're seeing human organization and especially economic organization in at the core of the industrial revolution. So this is a point I make occasionally is that the industrial revolution is actually first and foremost, a moral transformation, not, not because, you know, it has moral effects like, you know, lifting people out of poverty, uh, but because it has moral inputs, like changing how we view human relationships and production and, and our life. So, and, and so I, you know, basically that's, that's a relationship between the, that governance problem, that moral problem of, of improving our governance relations and the industrial problem. Also, of course, common relationships with the planets. So the, so these three things that I'm laying out, they're kind of uh, very related, I think. And, and they together form, form this definite vision, at, at least as far as what I'm pursuing. This is the vision I think we need to be chasing after, especially the the core necessary component of that, which is a transformation in how we govern society. Um, so that's that's my big vision, the thing that I'm doing with Palladium, um, or at least one part of it, um, one expression of it. But that's that's the actual visionary part. I love that. I I think that's that's so important. Um, and and I do get the sense, you know, you've got. Um, this sense of trying to actually go and, and engineer, you know, society in a way like where most social scientists seem to be more like, I guess, Hayekian or something where, and, and the, you know, the specific details, like, yeah, I'm just talking like generally. Right. But yeah. Uh, do you think that gave you a unique perspective? Like just like thinking through like you practically, how do we go and design this versus just like letting it happen? It's just going to evolve how it evolves. I think what you're asking is where that came from. Yeah. I'm not sure where it came from. Uh, let me think about that for a couple seconds here. But it might just, yeah, I mean, it might be related to kind of my, my sort of engineering background. I, I actually don't think it directly does. I think I just did a lot of thinking about philosophy, a lot of engagement with the established ideas like utilitarianism and, um, you know, these more sort of indirect views on things. Uh, and, and I did a lot of engagement with that stuff and I've just chewed through a lot of ideas gotcha. over the years and, and settled towards this very active paradigm of how you have to deal with these things. And I, I think, yeah, I, you know, so, so various places we can blame um, if we need to blame somebody or you know, credit, <laughs> credit as it were. Uh, but you mentioned um, the definite indefinite di diversion or, or division. You yeah. Know, and and that's, that's from uh, Peter Thiel's zero to one, his book. I found that persuasive when I read that. Um, Sam Oberia has this idea of great founder theory that social technologies come as a result of concerted action by, uh, by especially talented individuals and small groups who, who undertake a social engineering program to, to build new social technologies that they implement on society. Um, I found that persuasive, um, ideas just as I studied kind of government and the problems of government, problems of politics and so on, one of the core ideas that I came to was that almost everything in society happens, if not by design, at least by implicit intention on the part of the ruling class and including things like revolutions, which are very often actually just fights within the ruling class or internecine kind of struggles. Yeah. So things, things sort of um, cooked up by the ruling class to sort of 
create some some new it's not fully like you know gnostic total separation between between the elite and and the spectacle it, it, the elite also live in the spectacle but but there's a definite sense in which there are people with very outsized power and and what's going on important. is is largely the result of what they are trying to do and what they if if not explicitly what they implicitly intend to do and gotcha. so and once you sort of it's easy to hide power but it's also really easy to project power and and in hidden ways um and so power generally has a much larger impact than you think um and the result of that is is that you really have to grapple hard with the problem of what do you do with power and so this is another kind of source on on this way of thinking grappling with that problem okay power is actually more important than we thought even and what do we do with that? How do we actually use that power? That that immediately gets you into this problem of governance. Yeah, and anyway, so yeah, we've 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 produced Palladium to <laughs> attempt to answer these questions. I love that. I love that. Um, so I've got a couple overrated, underrated. We go through quickly in the last couple minutes. Sure. If that's okay. Sure. Uh, so my first one is uh, Colin Chapman. Overrated, underrated. Colin Chapman, underrated. Uh, Colin Chapman is the founder of Lotus. He single-handedly dominated Formula One for like two decades, and um, yeah, total total genius. That's all. Yeah, I just got out of my friend's black Avora a couple a couple minutes ago. It's quite. I, I got to say, he did a good job. Um, natalism, overrated, underrated. Uh, you're just getting this off my Twitter feed or something. Yeah, natalism, <laughs> of course, underrated. I think people don't have enough kids. Uh, more specifically, I think I think. Um, People have these weird ideas that like, you know, material factors are holding them back or whatever. Yeah. And I don't believe it. Um, people have all these weird ideas about, you know, not bringing people into the world. They, they sort of have this implicitly misanthropic viewpoint that, that their existence is net negative. Um, I find it hard to empathize with that. Um, you know, which is, which and, is, and, it's very common with environmentalists. I feel like that's a very common thread I hear. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people definitely have an environmental impact, but you know, the reason we care about the environment is because we're people and we love life. Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I, I think people are, I have a lot of really weird ideas around having kids. I love kids. Uh, I love having kids. I have two of my own, hopefully more on the way. Um, and I, I think creating good people and talented people is something that is within our power as parents, especially among the sort of privileged uh, demographics that actually think explicitly about this and act on their ideology. Right. Um, and I think that that is is one of the most important things that we can do for the future. You know, this is something that's very obvious to me as even as an ambitious person that's like, you know, I've actually built some of the stuff that I've intended to build palladium, for example. Yeah. Um, it's it's obvious to me that that a huge chunk of my impact on the future is going to be not my work, but my kids. And and that's something I feel like people oppose those things very inappropriately. They think, oh yeah, I'm not going to have kids so that I can have this, this very outsized impact on the future. And like, you know, someone else will have kids and I won't have to worry about it, you know? And, and it's like, what are you thinking, man? Right. No, the, the, the biggest impact you can have is on having good kids. Um, that, and that's my opinion as, I don't know. I think I've achieved some success in, in the things that I've been trying to do. And I think I will achieve more. And I think that my kids will be, uh, a large fraction of my impact. I love that. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's very important and, and somewhat overlooked. Um, Chinese state capacity overrated, underrated. Oof. Um, I think everyone sort of realizes the state capacity that they have, and so I think it might be slightly overrated right now. Gotcha. Um, I think people still probably don't realize they they haven't viscerally been hit by the the ideological shock of grappling with 
the fact of Chinese state capacity, um, like how much that should challenge your worldview and how much you should demand in response to that. Um, Why can they do things? We can't do things. Right. Like, like so that, that, that is an existential critique to yes. our current paradigm. It, it's it, And people don't follow that chain of reasoning enough. They should. But that is slightly separate <laughs> from exactly how much state capacity they have. Um, basically, I think people are underrating the importance of Chinese state capacity, but slightly overrating how much they actually have. Gotcha. And, and um, yeah, I, I, there's people there's sort of this idea going around you know china is super competent like totally has the future under control and like etc they they're perfect government blah 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 you know we can't stand a chance but actually i think i think they're on a very similar path to us they're just a little bit earlier in the process yeah. and um they're going to run into a lot of problems i mean i wish them luck but that's also I just think that there's a lot of problems there. I, I see, I see the ways that that they are grappling with many of the same fundamental issues and have no way of solving them. Uh, in particular, I mean, you mentioned the natalism thing, having kids. I think, I think demographic China, has, China has problems there. People say China's demographic problem is going to like save America or something like that. That's total cope. America has <laughs> worse demographic problems. Um, and I, I'm happy to litigate that at length, but, um, but, um, yeah, and then the other one is is like ideology among the elite in China. It's, you know, there's a reason that she has to be putting a lot of effort into getting them on the on the true and straight path of socialism, because they're not exactly on that straight path. Um, and then succession. Um, that's a that's a seems like a big. I, challenge. I'm not I'm not super well versed in in Chinese internal politics, um, but my understanding from people who are is that there's no obvious kind of next generation being groomed. That's a, that's a real, that sounds like a real problem. Um, well, Wolf, we're coming up to the top of the hour. I really wanted to thank you for coming on. Um, do you have any parting thoughts and where yes. can people find Palladium? Yes. Okay. So parting thoughts. Um, one of the, one of our favorite ways to present all these ideas is through our print magazine and our print magazine sort of came about with, the idea of what we call luxury political theory. The idea is, you know, we're going to take, it's a luxury to be able to develop these ideas, right? But, but, and, and I think the ideas are very important and, uh, and I think they deserve a, a luxurious packaging. So we put them, we put our best ideas in our print magazine, which is coming out quarterly. We've already done Palladium One, which is the first one. This summer we have Palladium Two coming out. Um, so basically we take these ideas on particular topics. The first issue was our overall program governance futurism. We tried to put in sort of the most directly governance problem articulating articles that we had. And we accompanied them with my essay, um, the golden age, uh, a new golden age of governance, which, which laid out the argument that I was going through earlier. And, um, yeah, I think that, I think that, it's very important uh, to, to be producing physical artifacts of the thoughts that we really take seriously. And I think it's a great way to consume the material. And I think that, um, I think that, it, you know, as a luxury item, it's sort of something that's beautiful on your coffee table, on your bookshelf, something you can show to other people. I mean, this is something that big feedback that we've been getting right is people love kind of showing other people their their copy of palladium one right they're beautiful. beautiful they're, they're really beautiful it's got all these great ideas and it. it says something about you it says something important um yeah so i'm just gonna plug uh subscribing to to palladium one palladium one uh, or subscribing rather to palladium print edition uh which is quarterly it's it's not for sale you can't get individual individual copies you have to be one of our donors and so please do become a subscriber on Patreon and support the project. I think we're doing really important work. I think we're doing some of the most important work um, in, in the space of thoughts around politics and governance. And, and we really need support to be able to do that. And we get that support from the community and we reward that with things like uh, our print edition. So yeah, please do subscribe. Um, I think it's very much worth it. And we'd love to see you in the internal conversations that we have. Excellent. And is, is it palladium.com? Is that right? 
palladiummag.com slash subscribe. Okay, I'll put the link down in the description. Great. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, this has been a fun conversation. Otherwise, uh, I think think we laid out some very interesting models here. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Wolf. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 